A happy and holy Sunday to all of you. As we once again mark the start of a new week by commemorating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. May the peace of Jesus' new life of resurrection fill you abundantly, as well as all who have asked to be remembered in prayer. You are listening to Encountering Jesus with the Church Fathers, a podcast pondering patristic commentary and insight on the sacred scriptures, the sacred liturgy, and living as a disciple of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Father Mark, and I welcome you to this week's podcast, which marks Father's Day, as well as the solemnity of the most holy body and blood of Jesus Christ. And so it is appropriate, as as we start, uh, to call for special blessings upon our beloved dads, grandfathers, great-grandfathers, godfathers, and spiritual fathers. May the prayers of St. Joseph, guardian and foster father of Jesus, continue to guide them in living the sacred vocation of fatherhood. For our dads who have gone before us marked with the sign of faith, may they now rest in God the Father's merciful love. While all Sundays are uniquely holy, today is known as the Solemnity of the Most Holy Body and Blood of Christ, a day to particularly ponder the awesome gift of Jesus himself in the Most Holy Eucharist. St. Gregory of Nyssa will be our guide today, and since we have heard from Gregory a few weeks ago, I will dispense with the biographical information that I present in these podcasts. However, if you wish to review some of the background points of his life, I provided a link to that podcast in today's description. There is also a link in today's podcast description to what I call a Eucharistic examine. It is based on the words of Ave Verum Corpus, a Eucharistic hymn written in the Middle Ages and set to music by Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Uh, Incidentally, the Ave Verum Corpus is the hymn that accompanies the opening and the closing of each of these podcasts. As for St. Gregory's words to us this Sunday, they come from his Oratio Catechetica, catechetical oration, a work penned probably around the year 383, approximately two years after the close of the First Ecumenical Council at Constantinople. Gregory's work provided a summary, an explanation, and a rationale of Christian teaching primarily intended for catechists, pastors, and bishops. Chapter 37 features a presentation of the Most Holy Eucharist in which Gregory views this gift of Jesus as a drug, an antidote 
for the toxin of sin that we have let into both soul and body. His presentation is rather medical in character and background and underscores Jesus' words recorded by the evangelist St. John. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I have life because of the Father, so also the one who feeds on me will have life because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Unlike your fathers who ate and died, whoever eats this bread will live forever. And now, from chapter 37 of St. Gregory of Nyssa's Oratio Catechetica. Owing to man's twofold nature, composed as it is of soul and body, those who come to salvation must be united with the author of their life by means of both. In consequence, the soul, which has union with him by faith, derives from this the means of salvation. For being united with life implies having a share in it. But it is in a different way that the body comes to imitate union with its Savior. Those who have been tricked into taking poison offset its harmful effect by another drug. The remedy, moreover, just like the poison, has to enter the system so that its remedial effect may thereby spread through the whole body. Similarly, Having tasted the poison that dissolved our nature, we were necessarily in need of something to reunite it. Such a remedy had to enter into us so that it might, by its counteraction, undo the harm the body had already encountered from the poison. And what is this remedy? nothing else than the body which proved itself superior to death and became the source of our life. For as the Apostle observes, a little yeast makes a whole lump of dough like itself. In the same way, when the body which God made immortal enters ours, it entirely transforms it into itself. When a poison is combined with something wholesome, 
the whole admixture is rendered as useless as the poison. Conversely, the immortal body, by entering the one who receives it, transforms his entire being into its own nature. Now, nothing can enter the body unless it is assimilated in the system by eating and drinking. Hence, the body must receive the life-giving power in the natural way. Now, only that body in which God dwelt acquired such life-giving grace. And we have already shown that our body cannot become immortal unless it shares in immortality by its association with what is immortal. We must, therefore, inquire how that one body can be perpetually distributed to so many thousands of the faithful throughout the world and yet be received in its entirety in the portion each gets and still remain whole in itself. In consequence, we must turn aside for a moment to discuss the physiology of the body so that our faith in its concern for what is reasonable may entertain no doubts on this question. Now, who does not realize that our bodily nature does not owe its life to its own subsistence? It maintains itself and continues in existence by a power that enters it from outside. It perpetually appropriates what it needs and disposes of what is superfluous. When a skin is full of a liquid and this leaks out of the bottom, it fails to retain its shape unless something else is poured in to fill up the vacuum. In consequence, anyone seeing the outward shape of the skin recognizes that it is not a property of the skin itself, but that it is the inflowing liquid that gives it its shape. In the same way, the constitution of our body possesses nothing we recognize as its own by which to maintain itself. Rather does its existence depend on a power from outside. This power is food, as we call it. It is not the same for all bodies that need nourishment, but each has been granted its appropriate food by him who is responsible for its nature. Some animals feed on roots that they dig up, Others feed on grass. Others, again, on flesh. Man, however, is principally nourished by bread. Moreover, to preserve the body's moisture, there is drink. Not indeed of water only, but often of water sweetened with wine, 
to further the body's heat. When we look at these things, then, we are looking at the potential materials of our bodies. In me, they become blood and flesh, since in each case, the food is changed by the power of assimilation into the form of the body. Now that we have discussed these matters, we must turn our thoughts to the issue before us. We inquired how the one body of Christ could give life to all mankind, to all, that is, who have faith, and while being distributed to them all, suffer no reduction in size. Perhaps we are close to a reasonable explanation. All bodies derive their subsistence from nourishment, that is, from food and drink. Now bread is food, and water sweetened with wine is drink. Moreover, God's word, as we explained at the beginning, is both God and word, and was united with human nature. When he entered this body of ours, he did not innovate on human nature, but maintained his body in the usual and appropriate way, providing for its substance by food and drink, the food being bread. In our case, then, as we have frequently observed, when we see bread, we see, in a way, the human body. For that is what bread, by passing into it, becomes. It was the same in his case. The body in which God dwelt, by receiving bread as nourishment, was, in a sense, identical with it. For, as we have said, the food was changed into the nature of the body. What is recognized as a universal characteristic applied to his flesh, too, that is, his body, was maintained by bread. But by the indwelling of God the Word, that body was raised to divine dignity. We have good reason, then, to believe that now, too, the bread which is consecrated by God's Word is changed into the body of God the Word. For that body, as well was once virtually bread, though it was sanctified by the indwelling of the Word in the flesh. Therefore, the means whereby the bread was changed in that body and was converted into divine power are identical with those which produce a similar result now. For, in the former case, the grace of the word sanctified the body 
which derived its substance from bread, and which, in a way, was itself bread. In the latter case, similarly, the bread, as the Apostle says, is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. It is not, however, by being eaten that it gradually becomes the body of the word. Rather, it is immediately changed by the word into the body, as the word himself declares, This is my body. But all flesh is nourished by the element of moisture as well. For the earthly part in us could not continue to live unless it were combined with this. Just as we sustain the solid mass of the body by firm and solid food, so we supplant its moisture from what is akin to this. By entering us, it changed into blood by assimilation. And this is especially the case if it derives from wine, the capacity of being changed into heat. Now the flesh in which God dwelt used this element too to maintain its existence. The reason, moreover, that God, when he revealed himself, united himself with our mortal nature, was to deify humanity by this close relation with deity. In consequence, by means of his flesh, which is constituted by bread and wine, he implants himself in all believers, following out the plan of grace. He unites himself with their bodies, so that mankind too, by its union with what is immortal, may share in incorruptibility. And this he confers on us by the power of the blessing, through which he changes the nature of the visible elements into that immortal body. Let us pray. O God, who in this wonderful sacrament have left us a memorial of your passion, grant us, we pray, so to revere the sacred mysteries of your body and blood, that we may always experience in ourselves the fruits of your redemption. who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. Amen. St. Gregory of Nyssa, pray for us.